I know it's been a long time since I published the last episode of Good in Theory. And, in fact, the episode that you are listening to today was originally uh, recorded back in the winter of last year with the idea that I would publish it with an announcement that Good in Theory was going on hiatus and would be back in whatever amount of time. And the reason was the developing circumstances of my life, also known as I had to get a job, made it impossible for me to spend as much time as I would like making podcasts in my room. Now, these circumstances remain changed. So the announcement's the same, and Good in Theory will remain on hiatus for another little while. However, I have not pulled the plug on the feed. Uh, Don't consider it dead yet. Consider it at most in a coma. I hope to bring it back to life this year. I've done a lot of work on a miniseries about meritocracy, which I plan on publishing in not too, too long, but also probably not in the next couple of months. So if you like the pod, you'll have that to look forward to. Um, And I hope to find a way to make podcasting compatible with uh, the current circumstances, etc. Anyway, the main thing, since I've been gone a long time, and I'll be gone quite a fair while longer, is I want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I want to thank everyone who obviously who supported us on Patreon, but anyone who wrote in, contacted us on email or social media to say that, They enjoyed the pod, they got something out of it, they learned something from it. Honestly, that means a lot to me. I'm I'm proud of what we've done here, and it is only with regret that I had to very drastically slow down producing it. So, thank you. And also, if you are a supporter on Patreon, I put that shit on pause months ago, so I haven't been taking any of your money. I... We'll start taking it again if I ever start regularly publishing episodes, but until then, we're good. Today's episode is a crossover episode with Graham Culbertson of Everyday Anarchism. He's also publishing it on his feed. Uh, Everyday Anarchism is a podcast about anarchy, anarchism. Graham's really into it. He covers texts. He interviews people. He's got a lot more episodes than I do by now, and I really enjoyed talking to him. He contacted me to talk about ancient Greek democracy and Plato, so that's what we did. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Today... Athens, Anarchy, Plato, Oligarchy, Meritocracy, and Graham Culbertson of the Everyday Anarchism Podcast. Hi, so welcome to Everyday Anarchism that is that is also good in theory, right? We're, we're doing a crossover episode? Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me, Graham. I uh, love the podcast and uh, looking forward to chatting democracy. Yeah, let's talk about democracy. So the for those of you who are listening to this on the Everyday Anarchism stream, my guest today is Cliff Mark, the host of the frankly wonderful podcast, Good in Theory. I often find it infuriating, but that's because it's mostly about Plato, and Plato is infuriating. I do, <laughs> I do not find Cliff infuriating. I, I cannot recommend your podcast enough, Cliff. It's fantastic. 
Thanks, and yeah, to all the Good In Theory listeners, if you want to learn a ton about an interesting view of politics that I don't necessarily agree with, but I find stimulating, definitely check out Everyday Anarchism with Graham Culbertson. I was talking to Anthony Caldellis, um, who is a wonderful historian of Byzantium, and uh, we were talking about, you know, I was doing this fun argument with him that, you know, the Byzantine Republic is kind of anarchistic, which, of course, the, you know, the Byzantines are supposed to be the opposite of anarchism. And right. Anthony is, is Greek, and he was like, you know, you also need to think about ancient Athens and have someone on the show and see how your conception of anarchy fits with their definition of democracy. And I thought, you know, I know a guy. Yeah, I mean, I just I just listened to that episode, actually, and uh, it was really interesting. So, yeah, what can I tell you about uh, ancient ancient democracy? Yeah, well, I mean, th I think the first thing is you can start, like, I think when people think of democracy in Greece, if, if they can remember 10th grade, or I don't know when they cover it in Canada, it's like, you know, there are these foot soldiers, they're called hoplites, and they vote, but you have to be rich enough to be in the army to vote. That was my vague memory of Athenian democracy, but that's not... That's not right. The golden age of democracy isn't like that. It's it's different. So it's naval. Yeah, based. Well, yeah. Okay. Go I ahead. mean, yeah. there is there's a lot of truth to that, right? So I guess you're absolutely right to say that in the I don't know how popular the imagination is, but we have an association with democracy in Greece, right? Greeks they're the ones who did democracy first. It wasn't all Greeks. There were a lot of things that we would call democracy. Athens was the most radical democracy by far. They went more extreme than anyone else. So that's, if you're thinking of democracy, you're thinking of Athens. However, from a modern point of view, we have to put some qualifications in that it wasn't everyone, right? Slaves weren't citizens. Women weren't citizens. Foreigners weren't citizens. It was native-born men. Um, and what made Athens so much more democratic and inclusive than everyone else was just what you referred to earlier. Most other Greek city-states, to be a citizen, you had to be rich enough to be a hoplite. And that means hoplite's a kind of soldier, so you had to be rich enough to buy some armor, a spear, your shield. And that was like upper middle class. So it was a small group of people. Whereas Athens, they... They built their power not on foot soldiers, but as you said, on a navy. And you don't need as much equipment to be a sailor. All you need is, you know, a jug of water to stay hydrated and an oar and arms. So they needed a lot more guys to row these boats, but you didn't need as much money. So they just became much more inclusive and got rid of the property requirements. So the inclusiveness of Athenian democracy was more class inclusiveness than any of the, you know, exclusions we might be more worried about in the past couple hundred years. Yeah. So one of the things that often marks like democracy in the, you know, in this coming day and age is, is universal manhood suffrage. And although it wasn't a voting based system in the in the same way, you have universal citizen manhood participation in Athens, right? So this is something that like the the modern Western world reaches in like what the 20th century in, in some yeah. countries, certainly in the United States, you know, black men can't 
vote even long after abolition that that sort of thing so like universal citizen manhood participation is is a pretty recent thing in the western world as opposed to like a yeoman farmer form of democracy where everyone has a certain amount of property can participate yeah i mean i don't know (laughs) it seems like it was a long time ago, but the older you get and the more you read history, you're like, oh my God, that was just yesterday. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, it is pretty recent that they got rid of property qualifications. And this is, I mean, our democratic ideology today, we're always searching for what are the exclusions? It's supposed to be universal, everybody. And then, you know, people get upset about, oh, well, you know, we still don't uh, give foreigners enough rights and this and that. But I mean, up until really recently, for like the entire period of history between Athens and just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Most people who were writing about politics and thinking about politics hated the idea of democracy. They didn't want the crowds involved. And so it was very intentional to exclude uh, poor people from having a vote or having a political say. Yeah, one of the one of the famous moments in this in this kind of march through the Enlightenment. We're already jumping around from the bullet yeah. points I gave you. Sorry about that. Yeah. Is uh, the um, the Putney debates? I think they're called when the when mm. you know the the army has taken control of of the country of England, and um, you know they have this big lord, important guy named Oliver Cromwell, and the lords and some representatives of the New Model Army, the like sort of the the, the men in the army, they get together and they propose essentially. Like, hey, we're in this army. We're all in this army. Let's have everyone who can lift a sword get to participate in in the political system. And and Cromwell says the idea that someone and the quote is merely breathing, the idea that someone who is merely (laughs) breathing doesn't own any land, but just is alive. And of course, and is a man and is a citizen and not a slave and all this stuff would participate in the political system is so offensive to him. And we're talking a revolutionary, and we're talking a revolutionary yeah. who's only 400 years ago. So this is this is some crazy stuff that they're doing it in Athens 3,000 years ago. Well, look, we could go even more recent, right? Like uh, your founding fathers in the U.S., <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jefferson, Adams, you know, Hamilton, they were all against democracy. They were all, you know, boo Athens, yay Sparta, yay Rome. Um, and intentionally wrote, we need to keep the people in its mass out of government completely. And that's when you get, you know, people saying, oh, this is a republic, not a democracy. It is. It was never intended to be a direct democracy on Athenian lines. But that, I mean, that can maybe bring us to another point. Um, although, you know, I want to I just pull a couple of threads together that you mentioned about inclusiveness. So we're talking about how Athens was super inclusive comparatively um, and to to a point where in modern times we only recently got to the level of inclusion. Um, and one thing you mentioned about the Putney debates and that I already kind of implicitly mentioned about ancient Greece is the connection with military organization, mm-hmm. right? So now we have, you know, no taxation without representation is a catchphrase, but then it was very much... If we're going to put you in the army and put you in front of enemies and in danger of uh, being killed, then it's awkward not to give you any political rights. (laughs) (laughs) 
And, and throughout the history of democracy, you see this, you know, um, the expansion of political rights and greater inclusion comes with participation in armies. So ancient Greece, depending on the military organization of the city-states, that's who got included as citizens. Who was risking their lives usually got to be citizens. Um, that was true, you know, there was a lot of inclusion um, at other periods in history. After World War One in England, they, you know, um, expanded the franchise a lot. Uh, and so this is one, you know, that's just one link for inclusion. If you want to... <laughs> I guess if you want to look for the more inclusive regimes, you look sometimes for conscription and where uh, the elites really need the help of poor people. I mean, the tribunes of Rome, the plebs of Rome only got representation through the tribunes because Rome was about to be invaded and, and they all went and sat on a hill and refused to fight until, until they got some uh, political rights. So, um, yeah, I just want to draw out that link between military organization and inclusion but that other difference I wanted to get to was between inclusion and participation, right? Because we are talking about very different things, what a citizen was doing in Athens and what, you know, we modern citizens do today in our capacity as citizens with a vote. Yeah, good. Yeah, this is... Um... I, I just need to briefly mention, because I haven't had a chance to bring it up on my show yet. Th this is the point of the Second Amendment in, in the United States. Sorry, I'm not only an American clip, yeah. but a but a American studies professor. So, um, <laughs> you know, the whole point of this was like, we, we you know, to, to a certain extent, democracy or whatever you want to say ends in, in Rome when the soldiers become professional. So the, the idea is, yeah, we don't want everyone to have power in uh, America, but we just fought a war against a professional army. And we do want to make sure that like everyone who wants to be part of the army can be part of the army. We're going to call this army a militia to distinguish uh -huh. it from the U.S. Army. And you can think of the Second Amendment as like a left-wing, anti-imperialist project. And obviously, if you know anything about the Second Amendment, now that's that's not how it's that's not how it's treated but that was the idea is like let's make sure the people have guns the people are the army suitably led and well regulated uh and that will be that will resemble rome or i suppose also athens but we, we want it to be rome if we're the founding fathers not athens right exactly um yeah i <laughs> It is it is so interesting the like history of that because you know if the whole point is to you want to avoid a professional army because yeah. like that's only a small number of people and if you once you have a professional army that means the citizens are excluded the leaders don't need them and it's just the tool of domination and now you guys have you know <laughs> really a pretty <laughs> a pretty I, decent professional about this army professional army that we have yeah. <laughs> And so, and so you've got, you've got the engine of tyranny that, <laughs> that the founding fathers were afraid of, but you also keep the Second Amendment, which allows you, if you cannot um, menace and harm foreigners <laughs> with your personally held <laughs> firearms, you can at least menace and harm each other. Yeah, 
Yeah, okay. (laughs) No, that's precisely what the Second Amendment has become. And then, you know, you get progressives who say, I mean, one of my favorite things is dunking on progressives from my anarchist point of view. And they're just like, you don't need a gun. It's not like you could win against the U.S. Army anyway. And I'm like, right, that's why the amendment was written. To, so that once the U.S. Army started being built, that we we could win a war against them. We we the people. <laughs> so like you, you've got it completely wrong, progressive. Although I'm I'm with you, dear progressives, on uh, <laughs> on on fewer guns, hate guns, hate the Second Amendment as it exists. But it really was it, it was tied into this connection between military and participation, which gets mm-hmm. us to what you're saying with participation. For me, the the most obvious place to do this is with the January 6th riots or stupid coup or insurrection or whatever you want to call it. Everyone got really upset when these right-wing idiots tried to, you know, suborn this election and the crowning of, you know, the the new commander-in-chief as opposed to the old commander-in-chief who rules us with his professional army. And they all said, you know, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm not that yeah. far gone <laughs> into my anarchism. And everyone said, like, oh, no. If this election is overturned, we don't have democracy anymore. We need to protect Uh our democracy, which is a system whereby we choose representatives who have power over us. And our participation is limited to however long you have to stand in line. And if you stand in line and check the box, (laughs) it's a democracy. And if you look at Athens, Uh there there were governments like that. But they weren't called democracies. Right. So, yeah. This is really, I think, one of the most interesting lessons about Athenian democracy, right? So, first of all, I do want to say that you can be tongue-in-cheek and, you know, uh, cynical about the existence of American democracy um, or any modern liberal democracy. And I am sympathetic to that view from a theoretical point of view. But I just want to say, at least for my listeners, I recognize the contemporary common use of the word, (laughs) which associates democracy with liberal rights, voting rights, suffrage, elections. Um, So I think there is a case to be made that overturning an election does threaten democracy such as it exists in America or in the modern world. So Okay, actually, uh, now now I want to respond to that and say... Yeah. First of all, I completely agree with that. And secondly, what you have talked about, Cliff, on your show is that we have these these measures we have, the rule of law, um, elections, that sort of thing. They are, but now that we're in the 21st century and we're a long ways away from the founding fathers, they are an expression of a, a democratic ideology. They are, in my mm. opinion, a very, they do a very bad job of expressing the democratic ideology. But for all of my contempt for all of these things that we are you know, living under, I do think that people want democracy. And I do think they think that, that voting is an expression of that ideology. And in that sense, mm-hmm. voting is an expression of a democratic ideology. I would just think it doesn't it doesn't work very well for precisely the reasons that you can tell us the Greeks thought it didn't, it didn't work very well. Yeah. All right. So let's, I mean, let's get into what, you know, I said was the other like big difference between Athenian democracy or ancient democracy and modern democracy, Athenian democracy. So you think Athens 
forget voting. Think voting for a leader. Think participation, right? All modern democracies, we vote for representatives. They rule us. We choose our rulers once every election cycle. In ancient Athens, it was really, you're a citizen, you can go turn up. They all got together on a hill called the Pnyx. You could fit about 6,000 guys on there. And you could go there and put your hand up and speak and try to persuade your fellow citizens what to do. Hey, you know, should we go to war with Sparta? Should we build a navy? And people would get up, they would debate, and then they would have a show of hands or, you know, vote in some urns afterwards. So there it was the citizens are doing it themselves. They're making the decisions. They're doing the debates. Um, so it was this constant participation. And they would be there all the time. There were like 40 meetings a year. It could be more. So it's just a world of difference when we think of what the vote means now, which is you don't have to know or do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't have to in Athens. But, like, you could. So today, you know, we talk about freedom of speech. And freedom of speech means, I don't know, you can mouth off on Twitter and uh, whatever. Uh, you can say whatever you want without consequence, basically. Whereas Isagoria in ancient Athens, their idea of freedom of speech was any citizen can stand up in front of the assembly and sort of say their bit, try to persuade their fellow citizens to take a course of action. And there would be consequences if you messed up, but you at least had the right and the platform to try to be heard. Yeah, I, I think it's also important to mention that, you know, this this sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. Um, and part of the reason, you know, the reason why politics has traditionally been the province of the wealthy is because there are people who didn't have to to work. So that, because yeah. they had they had <laughs> money so they could get involved in politics. Um, and it seems like Athens has a very democratic way that they solved this, which is you can talk about it in a second, which is how they distributed, <laughs> how, how they let people um, have jobs. But they also had a very undemocratic way of doing this was there was money lying around because <laughs> they created an incredibly undemocratic empire. And every time we find democracy anywhere, we seem to find democracy you know, there, there's always a line drawn around. As you say, even today, people under the mm -hmm. age of 18, foreigners, etc. Like, yeah, democracy, but I mean, not for the islands that we are extracting tribute from. And if you're wondering, hey, how do these simple sailors have money that they can just sit around and argue for hours? Well, they they have become, in a certain way, landlords, uh, just yes. not of Athenians. Right, exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, uh, doing politics all day, that takes a lot of time, and you're not, uh, you're not doing that much labor specifically. Although, I will say, at least the Athenians, a lot of them did have jobs. They did work on their farms, a lot of them did trade. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very expensive, and uh, that, is, that is the big... You know, one of the big obstacles to us doing that now, because sometimes people talk about, oh, ancient Greece, it's so nice. Citizens really had uh, freedom. They could participate. They had all these rights. They, they could do it themselves. But then you think, like, how do you really want to spend your afternoon, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> how are you going to gather 300 million people on a hill 
And what would that even mean that everyone could speak? Like if you, you look at an unmoderated internet forum, it's a sewer. So uh, <laughs> just the practicalities of it are, um, are, are, are really difficult. And even if you could overcome that, no one wants to spend all that time. And it's expensive. <laughs> so yeah, as you said... In, in Athens, the way they made that time, you wonder, like, you know, it's, this is like, it's not even that fertile around there. Like, how are they feeding the, the city if they could just sit around and go to all these meetings and debate all day? And the answer was uh, they, they had an empire. They were just kind of exacting tribute out of all the surrounding islands in a sort of defense racket uh, based on their, on their navy. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, the other thing I'm struck by in, in your description of it on your episode about it is, you know, you talk constantly about about festivals and this is this this isn't quite following any of the lines we've gone down so far. But I needed to bring this up because when Graeber, who is my, you know, the person I'm following most in terms of anarchism and also the person uh -huh. who defines anarchism and democracy as more or less the same thing, which all the other radical Democrats and I think all of the other anarchists hate this idea, but I I like it. So I'm going to keep trying it. <laughs> Um, he talks about festivals over and over again. In his book, Debt, and especially the book he wrote with David Wingrow, The Dawn of Everything, festivals just comes up over and over again. Festivals are kind of like the great expression of, you can call it anarchy or you can call it democracy if you want to. What, what would you do if you had some time and money? Well, you would you know spend some time running the city to make sure you still had time and money. What else would you do? You would have a party. That's really what the yeah. people want is a party. <laughs> and then I think Plato would say, like, and this is why the people cannot be in charge. Because they want a party. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so you're making the case that Plato is annoying. I... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, w what about it? Like, they had tons well, of festivals in Athens. But, you know, they were like... A lot of them were reinforcing their political system and ideology, but also why not? Why? It's it's Americans more than anyone else that think you have to be working every second of your life. <laughs> uh, nobody believes this. <laughs> yeah, I don't look. I don't. I, I don't know. There's this is usually traced through the Protestants. This is usually yeah. John Calvin and John Knox are usually blamed for this, but that's uh, I think a different a different topic. Yeah, and hey, look, I'm up here. I'm in a glass house too. You know, Canada is not much different. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I, I do want to get to Plato, which is why I brought him up. Um, one thing I'm thinking is, you know, what, one of the things that I'm really struck with in your discussion of this is that this is a problem of scale, and it's true that mm. when most people come up with versions of radical democracy that they might want to see implemented in the modern world the obvious one is like descale scale down let's go to the neighborhood let's go uh -huh. to the town let's go to the village and there's a sense that it seems like obviously that that would work and you can find democratic traditions in in india in you know the basque country all that sort of thing and then the argument goes but these could only work like even Athens is maybe a little too big for mm. the kind of democracy that the people who want democracy uh, can have. And so this is why we have representatives and what we now call like liberal representative 
democracy because it's just a question of of scale. The alternative is Twitter. Twitter democracy. Right. That seems bad. Definitely. <laughs> so there is the question of scale. I think that's a real question. And Aristotle had a specific answer, right? He said your democracy can be the size of the number of people that you can gather in one place and that can all hear each other speak. Yeah. And he figured that was around 5,000, 6,000 people, which, I mean, they had more, much more powerful speaking voices, I think. <laughs> uh, but um, that's one answer. But it's not just a problem of scale. So you mentioned Plato, and I, I want to just get a little bit into the viewpoint, the, the other argument, a kind of platonic, snobby argument about why modern democracy wouldn't work. Okay, I say this in the episode I do on Athens or something like this. If you want to get kind of a intuition about why people hated democracy, just imagine doing it this way. You pick up the PA system at a crowded Walmart on a Saturday and you say, will everyone with license plates that start with A to M come out to the parking lot so we can decide whether to bomb Iran? Or, or, or to like, oh, oh, uh, we, need to, we need to plan our sewage system and we're going to do it the same way. Looking at the discussions you see on Twitter and other public fora, you might think that's a terrible idea. I mean, this is like a grand trope in, you know, American internet discourse, which is just the absolute misery of talking politics with your ignorant relatives <laughs> over the holidays. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it depends on which side you are, who counts as ignorant, but... I think it's pretty obvious to a lot of people why running a state like that might present some dangers and problems just by letting everyone throw in their opinion and uh, make decisions. And, and so if you get that, if you are a little bit shocked by the idea of just pulling a random, you know, pull over a city bus and let them, you know, determine education policy... Uh, I mean, look, that's actually not the worst <laughs> group of people, but... Yeah, see, um, there, there, see there you go, right? Cause you... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, like, this idea of just letting people at random uh, make big political decisions that affect everyone, that's the platonic uh, intuition, I think. You can't just let anybody make important decisions. You want people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, so... I'm just I'm going to throw out my my answer that I've been thinking of. And I don't think I've said anywhere yet, which is I mean you hear you hear this. I, I mean I love this example. It's a perfect example. Should we bomb Iran? Um, presumably, no. uh, <laughs> presumably the group of people who think we should bomb Iran um, come from elite circles associated with Samuel Huntington and or Francis Fukuyama and or Dick Cheney. And in fact, mm -hmm. if you if you actually grab this group of people from Walmart, 20 people and was like, should we bomb Iran? One of them would be like, did they do anything to us? Yeah, sort of in 79, but we decided to them first. Well, what the fuck? Why, why do we even have this conversation? Let's not bomb Iran. So this is the argument for non-professional actors is that professionals are a small selecting and self-selecting group who can go down some really, really bad roads. Yes. I think that in this case, 
you know, I like to believe that the American people is more peaceable than the uh, neoconservative <laughs> establishment was. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I don't think I would want to give up expertise altogether. Because if you think about, say, public health policy or, I mean, here's a here's a public health example I think was in Canada. There's a, a city somewhere in Western Canada. I think it was BC. And the... <laughs> The people in the city council, small town, they got to reading on the internet about the <laughs> dangers of fluoride in the water. Yeah. And and they, you know, was, they were scandalized, and so they voted. They exercised their local democratic right to take care of their water supply against all dental and medical advice and wound up with like a 600% increase in cavities and dental problems in the city. And they're like, oh... <laughs> whoops yeah why did we why did we ever think we knew what we were talking about there are people who have studied this right and and i think you know uh, that might be that might be a better example of something that you do people are more likely to think there's a technocratic answer to uh and that education might help yeah i mean look i go i go through this in my head like a thousand times a day because the other public health thing was it was pretty obvious to me that hand washing was not very important very early in COVID. And the reason uh -huh. why it was obvious to me was because of the of the experts who I was reading. I want to be very clear that this idea came from experts. But it's also clear that those experts lost for the first like six months of COVID the the intra-expert battle. And we got six months of no new ventilation and the windows were closed, but we were all washing our hands and doing uh, the, the worst thing. I don't want to suggest there's not a place for experts. I mean, Proudhon has this really easy ample answer that's like, you know, if I want the cobbler, I'll ask the cobbler to be an expert. And I take it that that's not very, that's not very useful in the case of a plague or the case of fluoridization. But I also think that the the number of times... Let's put it this way. The number of times the experts have driven us off the cliff is so many that I am trying to pull us the other way. And if I sound crazy in how far I want to pull us, I probably don't actually want to pull us as far as it yeah. sounds like I do. I want, I want a world in which experts exist, but, and this can take us to Plato, the way I see experts being chosen trained and empowered right now i'm not i'm not a big fan of i mean you and i both taught in meritocratic institutions mm -hmm. and i think are not huge fans of how they choose and train experts yeah uh that's that's correct <laughs> <laughs> um yeah okay so let's let me do the plato thing first yeah. And uh, just a very briefly, because we wanted to talk about Athens and the Republic. So in my podcast, Good in Theory, the sort of big project was I adapted Plato's Republic. It's like a 13-part series, rewrote the dialogue, and did a lot of explanation of it. And so this is Plato's most famous dialogue, and this is the one that's most famously elitist, snobby, critical of democracy. And in it, there's this long discussion he and his younger boyfriends are talking about the perfect city. What would be the like perfect city? And it turns out it's a completely 
totalitarian utopian technocracy where you have these philosopher kings that are trained since you know before birth um, and brainwashed in a completely immersive education system for their whole lives to become philosophers and in touch with the form of the good and lots of math and they alone will have the wisdom to rule the city and everyone else is just supposed to listen to them because they're the ones with the best souls and the best brains and all of that and so his whole thing is expertise he says look you you want someone making laws you want someone running the city you want a person who knows what's up what's good for people what are the best rules and that just takes a lot of training and expertise and talent and so who do you want in charge? You don't want just anyone. You want the people who are best suited to it. And that, I think, is the basic intuition behind a lot of what Socrates is saying in that dialogue. And yeah, I think that is an intuition that even though a lot of people balk at the extravagantly <laughs> oppressive nature of the city and speech in the Republic, that basic intuition that we should have experts and people that know what they're doing is certainly, uh, you know, very active today. I mean, I would say more or less underpins the, the private school and SAT prep to Harvard, mm -hmm. to McKinsey, to secretary of transportation, to hopefully eventually for our mayor, Pete Buttigieg president, right. uh, structure of our current American. And I would say also your, uh, slightly more lovable Canadian society. This, this, you know, if, if we weren't trying to have philosopher kings, we wouldn't make it that you have to go to Harvard to be a senator. But you more or less do <laughs> have to go to Harvard to be a senator. Yale and Princeton, somewhat acceptable, not as good. I thought... I thought Yale Law would get you a lot of places. But yeah, you're right. You're okay, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's 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 weird that on the one hand, um, I feel like the democratic instincts are like boo Plato, boo totalitarianism, meritocracy. <laughs> but we've somehow combined democracy with meritocracy, and meritocracy is the cover for inequality, um, and so that's how you produce your ruling class. That said, look, I've I've been to some elite institutions and met the people from there, and they they don't. They don't necessarily turn out like Plato described the philosopher kings. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know that we've got it perfect. And yeah, I mean, even I Plato, Plato, even Socrates would not, he would not look at the system and say, this is a fair approximation of it in the least. Yeah. Um, I think what he would say is this, do, it doesn't go far enough. You know, like we need to, we need to turn Harvard to 11 and we need to re remove McKinsey from the loop and that sort of thing. 11 i think i think socrates would say it's not even headed in it's not that it doesn't go far enough it's not even headed in the right direction because it's all private education and the education system in the republic is the exactly the opposite about that of that it's about eliminating your sense of like particular personal interest and creating these people who are only concerned with the most abstract and, and public things uh and probably more more trigonometry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I the problem. I mean, one of the problems. This is Harvard. Is you know, it's a charity. I don't, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard. It's a it's yeah. it's a nonprofit. So it's not it's not that private. It's supposedly serving this public good. I don't know if you guys have that same structure in in Canada. But like, if Harvard were truly private, 
they would be giving the U.S. taxpayers like hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But they're not because they're a nonprofit. Right. What I meant more was that um, the sort of implicit reason that people try to get good educations is to get ahead. Mm. Right? So it's getting into an elite school is not let's face it, not on the like retail level because people all want to serve, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that they want to go on. It's not that McKinsey is necessarily a step to public service. It's a goal in itself. And yeah. so is wall street. Right. And it's to win, uh, as an individual. And you know, you have another ideological trick that says winning as an individual <laughs> is good for the whole, but Plato wouldn't go along with that. Um, <laughs> all to say, uh, Meritocracy in both the American version and the uh, Platonic version are antithetical to democracy, but in different ways. Yeah. I find them to be more similar than you do, but I realize there's something else that my mm -hmm. listeners absolutely need to hear, which is your explanation. Well, I mean, anyone's explanation, but yours is very good and you can give it now of why voting is incompatible with democracy at least according to uh, Athenian democracy. So yeah, forget about Plato for a second. This is one of the most interesting to me things I learned from studying ancient democracy, right? It's that for us moderns, the mark of democracy is elections. Can you pick your leaders in a free and fair election? Yes, you live in a democracy. Great. Um, Athenians... They saw election as an oligarchic institution, right? They, they figured there's two kinds of government. Rule by the few, the rich people, that's oligarchy. Rule by the many, that's democracy. And elections, they say, were oligarchic. Why? Because what do you need to win an election? You need money because you need to take all that time off whatever else you were doing to go knock on doors and talk to people. Even today, you could use fame. The more prominent you are, the more name recognition you have, uh, the more likely you're going to, to win an election. And when I did my episode on this, I said, look, Donald Trump, famous rich kid, <laughs> Justin Trudeau, the closest thing we have to Canadian aristocracy, the son of a former prime minister, the premier of my province, Doug Ford, was the son of another provincial politician and the brother of the mayor of Toronto, former mayor of Toronto, now famous. Um, and then even now the current mayor of Toronto, his name is John Tory, and he's the fourth in a line of John Tories that go back to before the Confederation of Canada, who are all like rich lawyers and insurance company owners and stuff like that. So you get the occasional commoner uh, coming up and becoming a congress a congressperson, um, but mostly elections skew towards the rich and famous. So from the Athenian point of view, if you're picking your leaders by elections, it's always going to be these aristocrats who get picked. If you want to do a democracy, if you want the common people really exercising power, they pick their leaders differently. They pick their magistrates differently. They didn't have a set of civil service exams. They didn't have elections. They pulled names out of a hat. And I mean, <laughs> if you want to give the people power um, and you also want to activate all those panicked worries we have about putting amateurs in charge of important things, that's how you do it. 
Well, I guess I want to say that uh, the obvious solution to the meritocracy as it exists is, you know, what is sometimes called the level playing field. The idea that, and this maybe sounds more like Plato, and you can tell me what you think. The idea that if we're more communistic, if we go look for the golden souls, no matter who Mm. their parents are, we can Mm. get something that maybe is not very democratic, but has meritocratic expertise without being oligarchic. It could almost be, I mean, Plato's Republic is in some ways almost like post-political. There's not a sense that people are arguing about politics. It's just everything is 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 working. And certain anarchist thinkers like Oscar Wilde is one kind of suggests that maybe people should be found that should be running things, but there should be no prestige or even power associated with running things besides like, you know, why like the the person who runs the city should be like a cleaning person is right now. Someone who does a vitally important job uh-huh. and who isn't, you know, regarded that highly and it does seem to me that that's one potential road to try and square this circle and i wanted to see what you thought or what you think plato would think okay so the idea is that the solution to oligarchy is more meritocracy Yes, that's the... I know you don't believe that. <laughs> I, I know for a second you don't think that. Okay. Um, yes, okay, yes, but... Right. I thought I should okay, bring it so up. Okay, so my, my instinct from the... Just the first thing I'm thinking of when you mentioned this Oscar Wilde example of, you know, yeah, why... Our our captains of industry and captains of government should take the bus to work like everyone else, and, yeah. you know, everyone's a sort of... Uh, lunch pale prince, whatever. I don't know. Uh, the first thing I'm thinking of is good luck with that because attention's naturally attracted to power and hierarchy is a strong <laughs> tendency. The second is maybe, and this is just, you know, I thought I had because I read too much, you know, Rousseau and Hobbes and stuff, is the important thing necessarily isn't necessarily political power. The important thing is the recognition and status. So... Mm. We need a way to order each other. Um, and so the the trick is stopping the people at the top of the hierarchies just from taking all the power and using that to dominate every sphere of life rather than necessarily uh, the people who um, use political power to like get too rich or something. I think that the problem isn't you're not searching far enough for the diamonds in the rough because... If education works at all, and we have reason to believe it does something, then it's not so much about finding these diamonds in the rough or raking, you know, raking the people of value out of the ash heap of the American youth as like, (laughs) this was one of like Lincoln's ways to describe a meritocratic (laughs) scholarship system. And leaders are in large part made, right? So... To me, the answer is don't go looking further. It's make sure everyone has a fair chance to develop. Try to develop everyone and just make the band of inequality much smaller and you're going to get better results. If you don't want rich people to constantly compound their advantages and hold other people down, then just make the stakes lower. And you make the stakes lower by not allowing people to be poor or rich. You set a, you set yeah. a ceiling and a floor to the control of of resources and you have to do something right to make 
resources and prestige un, unconnected, you know, disconnected. So that if someone has obtained infinite prestige, they do not also obtain $55 billion. Right. And, and vice versa. Um, it can be done. Yeah, I think we call this the New Deal in this country. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's amazing how many times these conversations just end up with like, and that's why there should be, you know, higher taxes and more access to employment. It does seem like it's a yeah. fairly workable so- solution that doesn't, you know, doesn't push us into utopia. But Or, or let's go full Plato. And maybe you'll be sympathetic to this <laughs> and completely separate them so that those who exercise political power can literally not own property, have their own house, um, ever be alone or unsupervised by others. And then, <laughs> then we know that they won't be exploiting their merit for, for personal gain. The, the only thing they want to do is contemplate the forms. I think that system would last for about a a, a, a week. Um, I know I know that the idea behind Sparta and behind Plato's strange version of Sparta is that things don't change and the institutions remain perfect and are preserved. But uh, I've seen the ruling elites; they change the rules in favor of themselves immediately. Well, you know, uh, Plato, Socrates might just say that's because they weren't educated properly; they never actually did it. <laughs> But I mean, look, this is a this is a debate about like what does Plato actually mean. But I I think that the point about separating personal advantage and political power is again something that is a point that everyone's kind of interested. in. I think that yeah. you're probably sympathetic to as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, sure. I'm not sympathetic to, to Plato's solution, but I am sympathetic. Plato, Plato is right. I mean, this is the this is the one place that I am sympathetic to Plato is that he does <laughs> he doesn't want the kind of oligarchy that I also don't want. Sure, fair enough. Good in theory welcomes Graham Culbertson, famous Platonist and elitist. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you. You know, I just um, I've achieved a lot of success through through hard work. And uh, and and merit, and I just wish everyone else could do the same. Um, yeah, I think people should not have to work so hard, and merit shouldn't count for so much. Just like make the stakes lower. Let's just make yeah. the stakes lower. I I mean I can't I cannot find um, a simpler way of putting it than that. Make make the stakes lower. I mean I think about universal basic income a lot, which is just another way of saying make make the stakes lower and. Uh, that is, I suppose, the crucial thing. If you're going to draw a line, I mean, I'm thinking of the work of Corey Robin between uh-huh. like left wing and right wing thinking. One of the things that the right wing always does is it defends power and privilege. But also, you know, when Corey Robin does his readings of people like Burke, he shows that they really do think Hayek is another that like mm-hmm. winning is everything, or or everything is winning. And you have to like when you when you enter the economic field for Hayek, the fact that you might starve and die is like what gives life its flavor. And uh, that seems like a bad way of doing it. You say Burke thinks that I'm even going to push back on Hayek because <laughs> when you read The Road to Serfdom, there's a lot more scope for a welfare state than you know, libertarian neoconservatives, which have, have you believe. 
So when we're talking about the individual interpretations, yeah. But I get this view that it's all about like this dog-eat-dog world and only the strong survive. But yeah, I don't believe in that. I would like to share with you one of the things that I found most interesting when I was getting into the Republic for the podcast and that maybe you'll be sympathetic to. And that relates to our discussion about oligarchy, democracy, and so on. Uh, Money, inequality. So there's this bit in the Republic where Socrates is describing how the regime changes, how it goes from the like perfect regime of the philosopher kings and it becomes a democracy where the military virtuous guys, all the soldiers rule. Then it degenerates into an oligarchy and then a democracy and then tyranny. Anyway, oligarchy is the one I want to talk about because I found something that I thought was interesting in here and that kind of just makes me always remember the the lower the stakes principle, which is when he describes the oligarchic man, the oligarchic citizen, it's not what we think of as an oligarch. It's not like some guy driving around London in a Bugatti going to nightclubs and stuff like that, right? It's not It's not the unassailable rich person that characterizes oligarchy. It's someone with tremendous status anxiety and who is very cheap. <laughs> and the reason and the reason that is is because so he describes the oligarchic man they're like scrimping and scrounging. They love excess, they love spending money but only if it's other people's money because in an oligarchy there's a huge gap between rich and poor. If you fall below the threshold of being one of the elite, then you are screwed. You do not want to make that fall. The stakes are too high. And that makes people people paranoid and anxious and willing to hold others down so they can maintain this very precarious position. And that insight into what is an oligarchy like? It's not about a few people just living it up and being rich. It's about a fear of falling. Um, and I think you see that in more libertarian, unequal countries. And that brings us back to the whole idea of New Deal, welfare state, let's put a floor down. Because not only is there just like, poor people will have more, oligarchy ruins everyone's lives. Even the people who are part of the elite um, have this constant anxiety. And that's what like all these books critical of meritocracy that have come out in the past few years are about, right? You got Michael Sandel wrote one, uh, Markovitz, who's a, a Yale guy. There's all these meritocrats are like, this sucks. All us people who are in the elite, all us <laughs> university professors, all us McKinsey consultants, all us Wall Street guys, we're working 70-hour weeks. We don't get to have any life. And we have to. We have to. Or else, you know, we plummet down to the totally precarious underclass. And so I think from my view of Plato's analysis of oligarchy... Uh, <laughs> You know, smaller, smaller band, lower the risk, get rid of the rich. I'll give you another way that uh, that Plato is absolutely right, because where I have seen the meritocratic suffering is is not from these, you know, these professors. I mean, look, yeah, I know like Duke professors, they're miserable. They're all miserable. Yeah. Um, but I've also taught their children mm -hmm. and the parents live in absolute fear. And frankly, it is a justified fear that their kids will fall below a threshold. And in America, if you fall far enough, you can literally die. We're not talking mm. about, oh, no, my kid will only make $50,000 as a teacher. We're talking about, oh, my kid has a mental health breakdown, doesn't finish college, et cetera, et cetera, may not actually make a living wage. 
And right. so most of the driving force that I see for the meritocracy now is from meritocrats imposing it on their children because they are they cannot pass down they're they not rich enough to pass down a mm-hmm. billion dollars to their kid the only thing they can pass down is this path to meritocratic success and this is precisely mm-hmm. why plato says these people cannot have children i mean they can they can <laughs> biologically create children but they cannot be involved in the rearing of children because as soon as your meritocrats have kids the family of the meritocrats yep. is the enemy of the meritocracy, and I see that at UNC, it's not quite Harvard, but man, is it a meritocratic place? And I see that every day with my students. Well, yeah, and that's what I'm talking about when I talked about earlier about the private nature of American education. What I meant is the family still exists. So, <laughs> um, you know. Okay, it seems to me like we've done we've done enough work for this episode. Um, I guess I wanted to All ask right. you the same question that you asked me was there anything uh, you wanted to ask me or anything else that you wanted to get covered on this episode well i mean i i thought i would let you guide it but i i would like you to tell me a little bit about how um you talked at the beginning about how you thought athenian radical democracy might be an embodiment of anarchy so i mean give me the brief (laughs) yeah okay good yeah this is again I'm following this idea in Graeber and I've already spoken to multiple other anarchist intellectuals who have just been like, no, I'm, I'm not buying it, uh-huh. but I am buying it. So when you describe, like, for example, in your podcast, which is the most detailed description of uh, Athenian democracy that I've ever taken in, you, you describe a world without experts in which everyone is working and pitching in in a way that is organized and has room for experts on the side, but isn't devoted Mm. to experts and is devoted to, in a certain way, the good life. And when you look at whether, whether the people who call anarchists or the people who call, I call radical Democrats like uh, Jane Adams or John Dewey, what they are looking for is the day to day participation of everyone of the community coming together and whatever project there is to take on, the community does the taking on. And as soon as anyone imagines this bigger than a village, they start imagining things like drawing lots or committees or councils or something. And yet, without ever putting together what you might call a, you know, a coercive sovereign. And so when I'm listening to you describe Athenian democracy and you say, you know, the guy the guy running Athenian democracy, he's just a guy, right? His name is Pericles. He's uh-huh. not the emperor. He's not the king. He's just someone who has articulated a project that other people then have bought in on and are working towards. And one of the descriptions of anarchism that people say is like, you know, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't actually achieve anything. And Graeber says, well, sure you could. You just need someone to say, this is my idea, who's with me? As opposed Uh to, this is my idea, and we have a place called prison for anyone who is not with me. Okay, so (laughs) Athenian democracy, they don't really have a theory of sovereignty, but very coercive, in fact. (laughs) Well, it's it's like it's not as socially conservative as Sparta, but there's a difference between, you know, like this is 
the concept of coercion and essential authority is compatible with democracy, right? That's why there's majority rule. You eventually take a vote, and then everyone abides by that decision. And if you don't abide by that decision, they're going to force you. Um, So, well, I don't want people to walk away thinking Athens was like this liberal place where every individual can do what they want. They could do so in their private lives. But once they made the decision, there would be consequences if you went against it. So it wasn't like... It wasn't in the terms liberal democracy, they come apart. They didn't have liberal rights. Yeah. <laughs> they had democracy. They got to participate in the decision. But if you're in the minority, you lost, you still have to follow the rule. And I think that is probably the nub of a lot of worries about anarchism is that, well, look, we, we still need to be able to force the people who don't want to go along. Yeah. And I need to I need to jump in here and say, yeah. um, this is precisely why all of the anarchists refuse the label democracy Mm. because they view it as ultimately constituting a a whole a polity whatever you want to call it which is coercive at the end of the day after the participatory process has happened yeah i mean hey hobbes hobbes says there can be a democratic sovereign right exactly you can have assembly so and I want to, I want to be very clear, this is an anachronistic project. This is not a description yeah. of Athenian democracy as it actually was. But the elements of it mm-hmm. that are radical and, and incompatible with what we now call liberal democracy seem to me to, to rhyme with, if I can borrow that like history rhymes thing, mm-hmm. with, with radical democracy, sure, and with anarchism. I don't want to suggest mm-hmm. that uh, Pericles' Athens was... Uh, Anarchy. Nor do I want yeah. to suggest that uh, that you know Pericles's Athens was was even democratic along the lines of what I would imagine a democracy right, right. to be. But all of its strengths and all of its articulation of itself as a democracy, as opposed to what we have, you know, they they have ultimately mm-hmm. a sovereign state based on the will of the people. We have that also, but the various ways that their democracy is different than ours seems to me to be more anarchistic. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't want to agree or, or disagree because I'm not really that clear on the concept of anarchy, but it is more participatory. That much... <laughs> yeah, we can, <laughs> that look, much I'm we, sure of. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to go out on a limb uh, on the... On the on the question on the question of anarchy, that's that's certainly not what I asked you here to do. <laughs> but I, I do want to say the idea that the idea that your participation uh-huh. matters, that it is no one gets to decide whether you participate or not. You participate if you want to in yeah. something besides voting cuts to me completely against the grain to what we call democracy now. And it resembles something much more like what someone like Kropotkin would describe as anarchism or for that matter, Thoreau. You want, you know, you want kids to learn, put a little sign on your house that says I'm teaching here. Uh That was Thoreau. That was Thoreau was a teaher. He put a sign on his house or not actually on his house, but the Lyceum was like, here I am. Uh Come learn from me. Much in the same way Socrates did. 
And if you try that in a so-called liberal democracy right now, you might even get arrested for like un- <laughs> unlike if, if you use the wrong it term. It will be for corrupting the youth. We know what it will be for. It's the same thing that they got Socrates for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Should have known that was going there. Okay, this has, this has, this right. has yeah. been good in theory slash everyday <laughs> anarchism. Such, such a pleasure. Such a pleasure, Cliff. Thank you so much. And thanks, thanks again for getting in contact and having me on. And uh, good talk. Let's let's be in touch. Okay. <laughs>